This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this very special episode of Best of Left. This is not a normal episode. If this is the first episode you're hearing, you should listen to something else first. This is not what the show normally sounds like, but I have something special for you guys. First, though, some context. Longtime listeners may remember that I love a good dose of context. So to tie today's episode to something that has been happening recently, even if it's a tenuous connection, uh, think about the, the phrase abolish ice, right? That's a campaign slogan that's been bubbling beneath the surface for years now, but it's possible that you never heard it until just recently because it started breaking into the mainstream. And that's just an example of that kind of a phenomenon. So similar to abolish ice, there's another term that I think is also bubbling under the surface and has been for a while now, and I hope it manages to start breaking into the mainstream, and that term is decolonization. And and don't even expect that I can possibly do the term justice. I am not an expert, but I can explain sort of real quick and simply The historical meaning for decolonization is focused on the undoing of the kind of colonialism whereby one country dominates and rules another. So think of Canada and Australia and South Africa as former British colonies, which are now independent nations. Uh, Now, the modern usage of decolonization has more to do with reorganizing the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples by recognizing that much of the political and social structures we still live under are massively influenced by our shared history of colonialism and domination of one people over others. So modern decolonization seeks to gain a better understanding of the legacy of colonialism that we continue to live with and then find a better path forward based on shared respect for autonomy and freedom. That's super basic. And and to be honest, I'm I'm just not going to get much deeper than that. So in this respect of modern decolonization, I get the sense that uh, just a couple of countries I've looked into, Australia and Canada, are at least a little ways ahead of the U.S. regarding these types of ideas. Canada is where I first heard of the movement for decolonization, and Australia, sort of in a parallel uh, system, has what they call reconciliation, and it attempts to bridge the gap between Aboriginal Australians and Australians of non-Native family origin. Unsurprisingly, this attempt at reconciliation has been messy and many missteps are being made all along the way, but just the fact that they are trying to do something, that they are acknowledging that there is something to do, seems better than what the U.S. can say for themselves. For instance, there is a tradition in Australia that has more or less gone mainstream called acknowledgement of country, which is often said verbally before a meeting or an event, uh, or it's sometimes written on informational signage on something like a landmark. So a sign talking about the history of a, a modern building may very well give the history of that building, but also have a statement acknowledging that the building stands on the traditional land of a local tribe of Aboriginal people. 
So here's an example of, of a statement like that that I found that you might use before a meeting. We would like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional land for the Korna people and that we respect their spiritual relationship with our country. We also acknowledge the Korna people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to the living Korna people today. So that just gives you a sense of what they're driving at with statements like that. And also, in addition to acknowledgement of country statements on informational signage, sometimes even independent private businesses will put up similar signage as a gesture, you know, a statement that the business strives to be inclusive. And so in America, you could think of Black Lives Matter signs, rainbow flags, genderless bathrooms, that sort of thing. So, of course, this sets off a secondary discussion about whether acknowledgement of country is meaningful or just meaningless tokenism, which is understandable. Uh, so I, I found a website where these kind of questions get asked and answered, and there's sort of an ongoing dialogue uh, with Aboriginal Australians. And, and so here is one anonymous responder's uh, response to that question, which I thought was well thought out and nuanced. So the question generally, is it important for non-Indigenous people to pay respect to Indigenous people at the start of gatherings, or is this tokenistic? And here's one of the answers that came up that I like. An acknowledgement is an important sign of respect to the traditional custodians of the country on which you are meeting. Said with authenticity, an acknowledgement of country is a small but powerful symbol and can start to change the dialogue between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, a dialogue that is based on mutual respect. An acknowledgement can also be assigned to Aboriginal people that a workspace, sporting club, or any gathering is intended to be a culturally inclusive space. A simple and meaningful acknowledgement of country should acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, their elders and ancestors, and include a recognition that their connection to country remains intact." Unquote. So as I said, I get the feeling that places like Canada and Australia, as imperfect as they are and as far as they have to go on these issues, are still a little ways ahead of the U.S. But uh, talks of colonialism have begun to bubble up here, too. Uh, there's the movement to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, for instance. You know, events like Hurricane Maria bring the legacy of colonialism in Puerto Rico into sharp relief, that's for sure. But the place within the U.S. that I think may be farthest ahead in the discussion of decolonization is Hawaii. Okay, so now one more layer of context for you. i got some personal stories for you. Uh, as someone who grew up middle class in California, uh, we vacationed in Hawaii. It was a pretty normal thing for people uh, in my area. Like At one point, we even discovered that our neighbors owned a timeshare in the exact same complex where my parents owned a timeshare. Uh, so it just gives you a sense. And, uh, and it was more than 25 years ago, I think, that my parents first discovered and uh, totally fell in love with Hawaii. And they have more or less visited the islands just about every other year. So, you know, every two years or so since then. And my mother especially loves their Hawaiian vacations. And I like to say that she is always existing in only one of two states of mind. She is either very much looking forward to her next Hawaiian vacation, or she is lamenting the fact that she just left Hawaii fairly recently and has to wait a long time before returning. Everything else is secondary, but those states of mind are <laughs> what come first for her. 
Now, to be clear, my family are all Howleys. We don't pretend to be anything else. That's the word used to describe anyone who are not either descendants of Native Hawaiians or the other ethnicities who were brought to the islands to work on the plantations back in the 1800s. And the term itself isn't meant as an insult. It's a neutral statement of fact to describe outsiders, but it can certainly be turned into an insult depending on uh, if some other words are added to it for description. Uh, I think you get the idea. You know, there's a big difference between Howley and a fucking Howley, for instance. You know, so we, we try very hard to not be fucking Howleys. My parents try to be the best Howleys they can be. They always try to give back to the islands during their visits by volunteering at the local botanical garden. And even more radically, my mom walks around the islands with a free Hawaii patch on her bag, which happens to match her bumper sticker on her car back home, uh, which are all in support of the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. Because... As we acknowledge, the islands were annexed by the U.S. imperialists for the benefit of the plantation capitalists back in the day. So basically, my mom makes it known to anyone who cares to listen that she would love to see the islands turned back over to the native peoples and all governmental ties with the U.S. severed. She just really hopes that they'll continue to let her visit their country once they're back in power. Okay, now just one last story for context, and I have to bring in yet another country into all of this. My sister is as American as I am, but she moved to France about 15 years ago, married a French guy, and now she's raising my two French nephews, who are about 9 and 11, give or take. Um, and, and these kids, being the grandchildren of my mother, have been hearing about the wonders of Hawaii since before they can remember, uh, though they haven't been there yet. And one of our favorite stories is from a couple of years ago when the older of the two boys was at his school in France, and he mentioned for some reason, I'm not sure why, that America has a group of tropical islands called Hawaii. And his teacher's response, which honestly we like to imagine as uh, sounding sort of defensive, was to point out that France also has tropical islands, referring, of course, to Tahiti and the rest of French Polynesia. So we, we sort of get the sense that that teacher might not have been as excited about the concept of decolonization as we are. So anyway, all of this is just to give context for the special show I have for you today, because I am currently, as this episode is dropping into your feed, in Hawaii with my parents for one of their regular vacations, and for the first time, the French side of the family is going to be making the trip out here as well, so I'm excited about the responsibility we have to teach my young and impressionable nephews how to, uh, you know, have a good vacation and play on the beach and all of that, but also have some respect, at least age-appropriate respect for the history of the land that they're visiting, or at the very least, how to avoid being a fucking Howley. Uh, so today, I want to introduce you to the best podcast I have come across that deals with issues of indigenous people, modern society, and the legacy of colonialism, and they do it all through the lens of stories local to Hawaii. The show is called Offshore, and it's produced by Honolulu Civil Beat, a nonprofit and nonpartisan investigative news site in Hawaii. Knowing that this vacation of mine was coming up and sort of wanting an excuse to share the story with you anyway, I reached out to the Offshore team and got their permission to play the entirety of their first episode of their second season. The season is called The Sacred Mountain, and I won't tell you any more about it other than to say that it is almost certain to get you out of your comfort zone, uh, if you have a comfort zone anyway, when it comes to the clash between indigenous peoples and Western society. 
There wasn't much to see on the mountaintop that day. Not much man-made anyway. One white telescope dome the size of a tiny hut. A newly finished dirt road sneaking toward the summit of Hawaii's tallest mountain. Dozens of dignitaries journeyed to Mauna Kea anyway. Made the long, slow trek up the mountain to listen to a man who could see things no one else could. Gerard Kuiper was a man with extraordinary vision. One of the world's top astronomers, Kuiper had such insanely good eyesight that he could observe stars four times too dim for the average human eye to see. But Kuiper had never seen anything like the stars from Hawaii's Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea, Kuiper proclaimed, was the finest spot on planet Earth for observing the stars. If Kuiper had talked to many native Hawaiians about his plans to develop Mauna Kea for astronomy, they probably would have told him that there are places where man is not meant to build, that there are things in this world that cannot be perceived by any human eye, not even eyes as sharp as his. But it was 1964, and native Hawaiians weren't consulted much, or invited to many dedication ceremonies. They asked an Anglican priest to dedicate the new road that would open Mauna Kea for development. Sent out invitations to the governor, the head of the university, members of the business community. So it was 125, mostly white and Japanese-American, men and women who stood on the slopes of Mauna Kea that day, listening to Kuiper. They couldn't actually see the summit of Mauna Kea from where they stood, but they could picture it in their minds, the way Kuiper saw it. A summit with the largest collection of telescopes in the world. Telescopes that had discovered what was nearly unimaginable in 1964. The expanding rate of the universe. The presence of dark matter. The black hole in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Perhaps they could even imagine a day half a century later when another group of dignitaries would gather on the mountain for the groundbreaking of a 14th telescope. A telescope so big it would have the power to look back through time to the moment the first stars in the galaxy formed. What they probably didn't imagine in 1964 was that there would be a lot of Hawaiians at that groundbreaking ceremony in 2014. Also without an invitation. Dozens of men and women charging up the summit to deliver a message decades in the making. Get off our mountain. From Honolulu Civil Beat and PRX, this is Offshore, Stories from Hawaii. I'm Jessica Terrell. The fight over Mauna Kea is a lot more than just a straightforward clash of science versus culture or religion. And it sent me on a reporting journey I never expected. From vaudeville shows in Depression-era Oklahoma to Apache spirit trackers in present-day Arizona from sacred ceremonies at the edge of an active volcano to underground research laboratories in California. The story of Mauna Kea is a story about science and culture, yes. But it's also about land and power, about who gets to say what's sacred and what's not, about the way Hawaiians, scientists, and humans in general search for meaning, about our changing understanding of the universe and competing visions for the future of our country and our planet. The earth is being threatened in our backyards, in all our backyards. So I cannot help but stand, because if I don't, the earth will die and so will I anyway. So you see, we've come to a point where 
you literally have no choice. But in that awakening, this is the beauty of it. You have never felt more alive. Native Hawaiians and environmental groups have been fighting telescope development on Mauna Kea for decades. But it had almost always been a local issue, something that made the papers on neighbor islands, but wasn't at the forefront of most people's minds in Honolulu, let alone, say, Los Angeles. Then came plans for the 30-meter telescope, the TMT, a $1.4 billion observatory with a dome 18 stories tall, the largest and most powerful telescope ever built. Hawaiian activists disrupted the groundbreaking ceremony in October of 2014. And then, the following April, when construction was set to begin, they gathered on the cold and foggy mountainside. They blew their poo, or conch shell. They chanted. And they put their bodies between construction trucks and the summit of their sacred mountain. Police arrested dozens of Hawaiians for blocking the road. More Hawaiians came to take their place. Hundreds upon hundreds. Jason Momoa, the hunky, part-native Hawaiian actor who played Khal Drogo on Game of Thrones, he joined in the fight. He took a picture shirtless with We Are Mauna Kea drawn across his chest, and the internet went crazy. Suddenly, the telescopes on Mauna Kea were international news. The largest telescope project in the world. New video tonight, 30-meter telescope protesters take to the streets of Pasadena, California. There have been lots of twists and turns since then. For now, all you really need to know is that construction is currently on hold while everyone battles it out in court. Before I can show you the battle lines that have been drawn and all that is at stake, I have to tell you about the mountain. I have to tell you about Mauna Kea. The mountain is, you know, it's definitely an elder, one of the wisest of elders. This is Ruth Aloha. She's a young Hawaiian activist who was arrested in 2015 during protests against the TMT. The easiest way to think of it is like grandparents. You know, everybody's got one or two grandparents that are really standoffish or grouchy and mean. But once you get to know them or you get your friends to get to know them, they just have the biggest hearts. And that's kind of what Mauna Kea is on a, on a cloudy day, you know. I've seen her fully, fully covered by clouds where you can't see the mountain. And, you know, and nobody's been able to see the mountain for weeks. And then you'll have a handful of us that can go to the mountain and lift our prayers and our songs and our chants. And she just unveils herself. The clouds will just open up for us while we're there, and then as soon as we leave, she'll close. Mauna Kea is a massive dormant volcano, making up almost a quarter of the Big Island's landmass. Imagine one mountain a quarter of the size of Connecticut. People refer to Mauna Kea in different ways. He, she, it... But if you were to think of Mauna Kea as a woman, picture a quiet woman. A woman of great stature who doesn't care much for fancy clothes. The Rockies, the Himalayas, the Alps. Those are more like the runway models of mountains. Giant peaks with jagged edges covered in glimmering snow. Flashy. Mauna Kea is a bit mysterious. Her style is subtler. A little more subdued. 
Don't get me wrong, she can wear a stunning cloak of white snow with great flair, but she often shies away from being the center of attention. She rises nearly 14,000 feet above sea level, but with such a slow and gentle slope that you don't realize at first how tall she is. That slow slope, by the way, is part of what makes the mountain so perfect for astronomy. The first time I stayed in Hilo, the main town on the big island, I didn't even realize Mauna Kea was there. Maybe it was a cloudy day. Maybe I didn't know to look for the mountain in the distance, to look for the gradual slope of brown and green. But the next time I arrived on a clear day, and the summit of Mauna Kea was covered in snow. It was stunning, so imposing that it was hard to imagine how I had ever possibly missed it. For people who want to visit Mauna Kea, who want to see the stars or watch the sunset from above the clouds, the first stop is usually a parking lot across from Saddle Road, about 45 minutes from Hilo. First, I want to say welcome, aloha, welcome, welcome. This is Pua Case. She's a Hawaiian cultural practitioner and one of the leading opponents of the 30-meter telescope. And and, uh, we're very happy that you're here. And this is our mountain that we are standing for. This is our Mauna Awakea, Mountain of the Sky Father. And you are standing at a place we call Pu'uhuluhulu. She's talking to a group of Canadians on a tour of sacred places in Hawaii. And I'm going to be, like, crying today, but just, you know, it's how I am. They'll all be crying with you. Yeah, (laughs) I swear. Yeah, we never apologize for that. Never, never. We never say, I'm sorry, I'm crying. No, we never say that. Bordering the small parking lot is an enormous old lava field, a vast expanse of black rock that looks otherworldly almost. On top of the hardened lava is a small stone altar, or ahu. This ahu was constructed for uh, the elders that cannot go to the top of the mountain anymore. Symbolically, when when you stand at the ahu, it's as if you're standing on the mountaintop, Pua says. Hawaiians also stop at the ahu before heading up Mauna Kea to leave offerings as part of a protocol, a basic courtesy, if you will, to the mountain. um, I want you to think about... When you're going to your grandmother's house, at least for us as a people, when we drive in and we haven't called first, we get out of the car and we stand in the yard and we say, Hui, Grandma, from the yard, because we want Grandma to know that we understand that she needs to make ready for us because we didn't call ahead. And Hawaiians believe you should have a reason for visiting the mountain. It's like any other grandma. They say, why are you waking me up for? Right? Make sure you have a good reason. And good reason might be just, I'm here to sing to you today. I'm here to pray for you because I love you with all my heart. And I would never let anything happen to you. Maybe that's just the reason. It takes about 20 minutes to get from the base of Mauna Kea to the visitor center at 9,000 feet. This is as far as most people go. Staying for sunset or nightly stargazing, it's crazy popular. People stumbling over each other in the dark to peer through portable telescopes. Once again, if you're in the line for Venus, please try to straighten it out. Getting to the top of Mauna Kea, 
Getting inside Grandma's house is hard in the winter. Rangers shut down the roads when there's snow, which is actually pretty often. Only telescope officials can drive to the mountaintop then. It's very cold at the top. The air thin and the wind fierce. But it's also stunning. Red, brown, and green hills, cinder cones, give shape to the otherwise stark and barren landscape. You're so high above the clouds that it almost appears as if you're looking down at the ocean. Mountaintops in the distance look more like islands in that white, fluffy sea. It's an incredibly serene setting, though. Basically breathtaking. Doug Simons is the executive director of one of the older telescopes on Mauna Kea, the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope. To be out there and to be able to witness a sunset or um, to simply shut yourself off from the world and take it all in a, in one setting is something that, you know, when I've taken people up, I'm convinced they will never forget that experience. There's, there's almost, a, you know, kind of a spiritual aspect to having that kind of opportunity. That's the other thing to know about Mauna Kea. There's something about the mountain that makes people of all backgrounds speak about it with almost a reverential tone. People who worship there, hunt there, work there. Amongst my sort of personal stories is uh, my intent to have my ashes spread at some point in the lower elevations of Mauna Kea because that's, in a sense, my home. I've spent such a large fraction of my time being there. I literally know what Mauna Kea tastes like and smells like and uh, have that sort of lasting connection that is unlike any other place in the world for me. Wow, okay. Oh, it is pitch black. Okay, I got a flashlight, just, just hold on. Gerard Kuiper, the star of that first astronomy dedication on Mauna Kea in 1964, never actually got to build a telescope there. NASA gave the funding Kuiper needed to the University of Hawaii instead. Then the state designated a huge portion of land on Mauna Kea as a science reserve and leased it to the university for a dollar a year. One observatory on Mauna Kea turned into two, then six. Other countries started looking to Mauna Kea. Canada, France, the United Kingdom, Japan. Telescope domes grew bigger. Equipment became more sophisticated. If Kuiper were alive to see inside of an observatory today, he would find himself in a very unfamiliar place. Hear that, that, that sound? Yeah. It's okay, the cooling, so, right? Yes, that's an infrared instrument. In order to be able to function in the in infrared, the entire inside of that instrument is cooled. Um, there are um, compressed helium lines that run from compressors that are downstairs up here to the instrument. I'm standing inside a large telescope dome at the Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea with operations manager Grant Hill. We're on a platform about four stories up from the ground. It's a few minutes before sunset, and if it weren't totally dark inside... I'd be looking at an enormous telescope mirror made up of dozens of segments. A crazy-looking thing supported by metal beams and rods that allow it to rotate in all directions. I'm going to open the shutters. Uh, okay, one of the open shutters will be in motion. Telescope as well. Shutters are open. I've spent weeks trying to get here, juggling scheduling and bad weather. To be here at the moment one of these telescopes opens and astronomy observations begin. 
And the whole thing would honestly feel a bit anticlimactic if it weren't for this. As the shutter opens and light comes in, the telescope mirror and the entire 10-story dome begin to rotate in opposite directions. Here's a good view. You can see the light's going to come down from the sky, reflect off the primary mirror, back up to the secondary mirror, then come down off the tertiary mirror and into high-res, which is that what looks like a small building over there you could walk around inside. While Grant's pointing to the wild-looking equipment in the center of the dome, I'm still mesmerized by the way the dome itself is moving. It's crazy. It feels as if I'm still spinning quickly around the telescope, but really, the platform I'm on is the only thing that's been standing still. Yeah, it's a common, it's very common to feel that way because you're looking at something that's moving, there's something else that totally surrounds you that's moving, and so it's very, it, um, I'm, I've seen this a million times and I feel like I'm moving. The way everything seems like it's spinning when it's not, this kind of topsy-turvy feeling, it's not unlike the way sorting through the conflict over Mauna Kea can feel. With one twist, the people you generally think of as the good guys come to seem like the bad guys. And then one more spin around the room, and you're back to where you started. When they say, where were you all those years? I say, unaware. I was unaware. This is Pua Case again. She's one of the leaders of the opposition to the TMT, the 30-meter telescope. I never even really un- knew that telescopes were being built. I was not even in that understanding they'd appear, you know? The first significant public opposition to development on Mauna Kea came from the Sierra Club in the mid-70s. It was a time that's now referred to as the Hawaiian Renaissance, a moment of cultural consciousness and rebirth for Native Hawaiian people. So many things happen and we aren't even aware of it. Back in the 70s, it was, at that time, we were very angry. I was angry. It was happening too fast. One day you had a beach that you camped on that you, your family fished from, and the next day it was sold. Hotels were being built on sacred grounds, our best lands. And we were just finding out who we were at that time. And, and in the next breath, it, it seemed to be gone. By the early 90s, Hawaiians were fighting back against the telescopes. In the media, in lawsuits... And for the last four months in a contested case hearing, a kind of cross between a public hearing and a court case. Morning, Your Honor. Tim Luikwan and Ian Sanderson on behalf of the applicant, University of Hawaii at Hilo. Good morning. Aloha Pua case for Flores case in Rios, Ohana, standing with a prayer group. The hearings are held in the ballroom of a hotel in Hilo. They last eight hours a day. The hearing officer is a retired judge a stocky Asian woman with a shock of short white hair who dresses in dark suits and often has an air of confused exasperation. There are more than a dozen parties opposing the telescope, and most of them represent themselves. Everyone in the case sits at long folding tables covered with white tablecloths, while the audience camps out in round pleather booths that ring the room. Just getting through the morning introductions of the parties can take upwards of 30 minutes, and that's before the disagreements start about things like who does or doesn't represent the interest of the mountain. So, so all right, I did not ask um, UH or TIO. I just asked those who stand for the Mauna, so. Okay, Ms. Case. Uh, any objections from UH? No objections, Your Honor. And Mr. Ng? 
No objections, but it does not necessarily mean that I do not stand for the Mauna. Good morning, Your Honor. Vaughn Cook appearing on behalf of Pueo. I, I would state for the record that Pueo does stand for the Mauna. There are astronomers who support the complaints of Native Hawaiians and Hawaiians who want the telescope to be built. But we do have to generalize a bit here. To divide into groups, I'm not going to say the people who stand for or against the mountain, so let's just say the people standing on either side of the mountain. On one side are Native Hawaiians and their supporters, a group referred to as the protectors. On the other side is the astronomy community. Scientists are really interested in understanding nature. That's Ed Stone, executive director of the 30-meter telescope board. Understanding why the world, the universe, is the way it is and how it operates, what the laws are, and how we can, in fact, then apply those laws to better life for humans. So I think new knowledge is what drives most scientists, learning something new uh, that uh, was unknown before. And they're not used to being considered the bad guys. Here's Jessica Dempsey, Deputy Director for the JCMT Observatory. I think you don't go into astronomy uh, thinking you're going into a controversial or politically challenging subject. Uh, there are not a lot of astronomers, I think, who were prepared uh, for the level of um, pushback uh, and, the, and the anger that, that came out. The Native Hawaiians fighting against TMT, they call themselves the protectors, the kia'i. And the Mauna Kea protectors, they share a deep love of the land and a commitment to standing in aloha. Here's Kealoha Pishada, Native Hawaiian and Mauna Kea protector who used to work at one of the telescopes. It's one of our deepest, deepest spiritual values. There's a full spectrum of aloha, I, I would say. But essentially, if we were to define it, it would have to represent a combination of highest truth, of compassion and love. That's really what it means. And in that simplistic way, it ranges from you know how we greet our visitors that come to how your tutu makes you a meal and to how we take the stand on the mountain. It's a discipline, actually, and it is a, a philosophical and religious discipline. <laughs> what the Kia'i did was they laid their life before desecration. And that actually is an act of deep love and discipline. And the Hawaiians, they are kind of used to being painted as the bad guys. Aloha has even been used against us. When we're making a stand, people say, oh, that's not aloha. And, you know, I've, I've found myself saying, well, let me, let, me, let me just tell you how much it is aloha. The astronomers and the protectors, like a lot of distant family members, they share a similar backstory. Just listen to astronomer Doug Simons and Mauna Kea protector Kealoha Pishada. The most broadly accepted interpretation of how the universe came into being is something called inflation um, after the Big Bang. In Hawaiian culture, there's the po, the heavy darkness. In the chant of creation, it begins in the po, and then it, everything evolves through it up until you come into a point of light. Uh, a realm of infinite darkness. And somehow from that realm emerges the first elements of what eventually gets turned into as Hawaii and, and Earth. It sounds an awful lot like a Big Bang from a vacuum. 
in cosmology, you know, after 10 to the minus 33 seconds or something like that, matter and energy begin to separate. And when that happens, then we can actually see there's a place in the origin of the universe where you cannot see because matter and energy are one. And I've, I've always been kind of struck by, you know, why they both of these theories or interpretations or belief systems start out with the same of it came from nothing. They tend to diverge a bit as you get into it, but the details of what emerged after that is almost secondary to the fact that the starting point in Hawaiian culture is now the same starting point in essentially every modern cosmology about where the universe came from. It came from a vacuum. Uh, so yeah, I think about it a lot. And for me, it's a beautiful connection. Keloha tried to show that connection to her college physics professor in the 80s. Let's just say not everyone is as receptive to making those connections. He said, well, because you were talking about this mythical stuff, and I was like, well, I mean, the Big Bang's kind of mythical as well. I mean, we don't really know. We're just hypothesizing. And it's the best guess, right? But all I was trying to do was connect, you know, just connect my worldview with that worldview. These two groups, the protectors and the astronomers, it often sounds like they're speaking different languages, even when they're both speaking English. The language of science, the language of spirit. There are a few astronomers and a few protectors who seem to be bilingual, if you will, who can hear the voices on the other side of the mountain and understand them. But for many people, there's a whole lot that seems to be lost in translation. It's not just that the astronomy community can be dismissive of Hawaiian beliefs. It's that they often don't seem to understand them. What about a mountain or a ceremony you hold on a mountain could possibly be more important than man's quest for knowledge? And for a lot of people in Hawaii, not just native Hawaiians, what happens in those big domes on the summit of Mauna Kea is mysterious, perhaps even sinister. Why do the astronomers want this knowledge, this telescope, so badly? The battle for Mauna Kea, the first of many standoffs between construction crews and Mauna Kea protectors, took place in April of 2015, just a few dozen yards from where astronomers and dignitaries gathered in 1964 to celebrate the start of development on the mountain. When the first day happened, when we successfully blocked the crews from coming up, there was maybe only 50 or 60 of us up here. The protectors didn't have a plan for stopping the crews with the low SS. Just knew we'd do anything it took to stop them from passing. They stood in the crosswalk near the visitor center, 9,000 feet up the side of Mauna Kea. And so when we were scanning each car uh, passing through, eventually we got to the security vehicle with the 30-meter telescope individuals in it, and they were trying to push ahead. Um, and one of our elders jumped in front and said no, and then that's when the whole shutdown had actually really started for us. All I remember was looking forward and, and seeing everybody just kind of like, not in a state of chaos, but just like all the excitement starting to lift up because we didn't know what was going to happen. And as soon as I turned around, um, I seen a chain of people who had, n nobody told them to do anything. 
they just started to assemble themselves um, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm. It was Hawaiians and non-Hawaiians. It was elders. Um, it was youth. It was children on shoulders, on backs. Um, and I just remember turning around and everyone was crying. When people came back down from the mountain that day, they were different. Something changed when the protectors linked arms, when the construction crews turned back. Something that the protectors, the astronomers, and people across the state who had never even been to Mauna Kea before are still wrestling with. You've been listening to Offshore, Stories from Hawaii. I'm Ben Ishimoto, Director of Philanthropy for Honolulu Civil Beat. To listen to the rest of this six-episode season and additional seasons of Offshore, find us on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and at offshorepodcast.org. Offshore is a podcast produced by Honolulu Civil Beat, a 501c3 nonprofit news organization dedicated to watchdog, enterprise, and investigative reporting in Hawaii. Our journalism is supported entirely by tax-deductible donations to our newsroom. We rely on support from listeners like you. Member supporters of Offshore receive exclusive behind-the-scenes access, additional audio and video content, limited-edition Offshore laptop stickers, and other goodies you don't want to live without. Visit offshorepodcast.org slash donate to learn more. Offshore's executive producer is Patty Epler. Our producer is April Estrelon. Our editor for season two was Ben Adair. So now do you see what I mean about getting out of your comfort zone? You know, you may think it's easy to be on the side of indigenous peoples when they're standing up to something you already think should be stopped, like an oil pipeline. But when the protectors aren't protecting their water, but they're protecting a mountain, which means slowing down scientific discoveries of astronomy, it may shift the balance a bit. Uh, so the rest of the series goes deeper into both of the languages, as they referred to them in that episode. They don't just follow the protectors and their campaign to block the construction of telescopes, but they also get into the science of the astronomers and discuss what kind of knowledge we could be missing out on by not building the telescopes. So to get the rest of that series, which I highly recommend, check out the Offshore podcast. And remember that the Sacred Mountain is season two in their feed. Of course, you may want to check out their other seasons as well. It's all been excellent. Uh, so thanks for listening. And if you're on the North Shore of Kauai, drop me a note and maybe we can meet up at the Wishing Well for some shave ice.